Hello and welcome to the Resiliency by Design podcast, where we will embark on a journey exploring the multitude of issues woven into climate change. My name is Ozzy Lang, and I will be guiding you through this exploration with help from experts who are working within the local and global systems to mitigate the impacts of climate change while adapting to new circumstances. Last episode, we explored the power of local food systems. In this episode, we will be continuing our exploration of the food system, but we're going to be gaining some elevation, getting to a higher vantage point to look at the mechanisms at play on a global scale. I am joined by Christina Sakarenko, a food systems expert and change maker. Christina works on a multidisciplinary team to help develop the food systems dashboard. Welcome, Christina. I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit about your background and what you do outside of the food systems dashboard. I'm originally from the U.S. and uh, have a background in medical anthropology, environmental studies, and currently work with the food systems dashboard team, uh, as well as a global diet quality team, and also work at Danone. So wear a couple different hats kind of got got my feet in different places but everything concerning food I'm hoping you might be able to provide some insight behind the vision of the food systems dashboard and some of the thought that's gone into creating it the idea is essentially this today if you want information about any part of the food system you really have to chase it down you know sometimes you have to go to up to 30 different sources to get the right level of of data and do a sort of rigorous assessment of what's out there. And it's hard to have it all in one place. So people tend to get confused about where to start. And it's a quite a daunting task because as you know, food systems are incredibly complex. And so our, our vision was really to put it all in one place to kind of centralize, serve as a one-stop shop, central repository for any and all data related to food systems, the factors that drive it, the people that are involved in it, the environments, the infrastructure, everything down to food waste. The idea was really to create this Google Maps for food and kind of put it all in one place for people. That sounds like part of the key to the success of the food systems dashboard is having all of this data in one place for people to explore. From my exploration of the Food Systems Dashboard, I can see how much thought has gone into developing the site. It really encompasses the entire food systems. I mean, I've seen other dashboards and data sites exploring the more technical side of the agriculture industry, but none that take into account the full system, from soil all the way through to food waste. There's so much information out there that's rich and and you know well researched and it's kind of hard to put it all in one place so you can compare it you know on a global scale and so that's kind of what we what we try to do as you started to go through all of this data you've likely got a really good understanding of what the food system looks like so from your opinion and your point of view do you see the system as being resilient I mean, listen, you've got two, million, 2 billion people that are overweight. You've got 800 million people that are malnourished. I mean, food systems are 
pretty much failing us in terms of livelihoods and health and environment, we kind of have to look beyond the idea that more food in the world and greater productivity is going to solve our problems. We have to kind of strengthen and adapt to, to the climate crisis, become better equipped to provide healthy diets for, for people in, in secure food and secure communities. I mean, if, if I had to define a resilient food system, it would be one that can really withstand and, and recover from disruptions in a way that still guarantees a, a, a sufficient supply, you know, of healthy and acceptable food for everyone. And it's not exactly what we have today. I would agree with you here. It seems like our food system isn't aligning with the needs of our populations. And as you've said, it's clear that a resilient system would be one that can withstand or recover from disruptions. A lot of these disruptions come from external factors like climate change and urbanization. And they have been outlined in the food systems dashboard. Could you explain a little bit from your experience how companies and individuals have started using these external factors and taking them into consideration while they're making decisions? Yeah, so it's a mix. You know, you you see some companies sticking to, to business as usual, kind of resisting the inclusion of environmental effects, like their carbon footprint into their business model and decision making. And then you see other companies sort of embracing what we call the food revolution, right? Just choosing to step up to the plate and, and meet customers where they are. We see kind of, you know, especially in in the millennial generation, you see growing demands. More and more people want to know where their food comes from. They want to be able to read the ingredient lists. They they might want health or sustainability labels on their on their food that they can trust. And so you see a couple companies, you see a lot of companies starting to embrace things like organic or regenerative agriculture, embrace local, but it's, it's just the first step. I think a lot of companies are just getting their feet wet with it. The truth is today producing a genuinely sustainable and healthy product at an affordable price, it's not all that profitable, right? you have to be able to do these things at scale. And so a lot of the times we do expect big companies to sort of be able to meet the moment and shift their production systems to, to better ones, you know, with companies, you know, Danone may be one of them, but there are many companies, many food companies that are sort of adopting internationally accepted sustainability certifications like B Corp. And really, yeah, they're really putting themselves to the test and having external agencies hold them accountable. And mm -hmm. so that's, that's a good shift we're seeing. But I would say every food company out there um, has a long way to go. I love this idea that you've brought up of a food revolution and this idea that people or companies are finding a way to meet consumers where they are. And that idea of changing the food systems to get to a place that is actually meeting the needs of those people and creating a happy and healthy population. It sounds like the food systems dashboard would be a great tool to helping in this change. How are you seeing companies and individuals using the food systems dashboard? 
Yeah, so the Food Systems Dashboard, it provides kind of uninhibited access to over 170 indicators, you know, that were previously siloed in different databases or, you know, different peer-reviewed research studies. And we're kind of putting it all in one place. And so people get to play with it. They get to sort of better identify challenges and, and problems in their food systems. They get to see if, you know, there's an elevated rate of take, you know, fast food consumption or sugar sweetened beverage consumption, things like this. They get to immediately identify it in relation to their neighbors, in relation to other countries around them, in their region. But more importantly, they get to sort of turn these challenges into opportunities just due to the kind of level of visualization and uh, yeah, the, the storytelling ability that the dashboard provides kind of helps, I think, nudge people in the direction towards finding solutions. And, and that's what we want. Ultimately, we want people to sort of be able to confront the issues in their food systems with a solution centered mindset. And we have three I guess it might help to contextualize it. We, we have three parts to the dashboard that try to do this. We've got the described phase that, that we're in right now, which is really just consolidating all the information that's out there, improving stakeholder understanding of, of national food systems. But we're rolling out two other phases in the moment, and, and they're called diagnose and decide. And this is really where we help people, we help stakeholders determine the challenges that each country faces in, in their own food systems. And, and then kind of giving them, you know, maybe a, a, a green light or a red light sort of warning about what's going on in their food system. And, and the decide branch coming soon will suggest kind of priority areas of action, like necessary levers that they can pull to improve their food system and sort of point them towards policies that have already worked. That's the, that's the end goal, really, to give people the full sort of gamut of a problem to solution. It sounds like you're going to be providing some much-needed insight into the food system, providing key factors that will be drivers for meaningful change. This would be a really powerful tool for policymakers and companies working within the food system. That's the goal. And I think the first part, it's basically, let's, let's get all the data that we think is relevant. Let's put it all in one place. Let's aggregate it across different sources. Let's organize it. Let's quality screen it. And let's make sure it's accessible. You know, let's visualize it in a way that people understand. And, and one thing that we find really important at the Food Systems Dashboard is to make sure that it's available for many countries. We have a pretty rigorous screening for the kind of data that we'll put onto the dashboard. And we need it to be not just comparable across minimum 50 countries, but we need it to be representative of what's happening in different regions, especially the global South, which often gets neglected when you think of you know data that's out there. And that second phase, the diagnose one, it's really, what's the data telling me you know, about how well different bits of it are working or not working? And and then decide is really, okay, well, if I know that, you know, the food loss or the food waste bit of my food system isn't working well, you know, based on these indicators, what are some things that I should be thinking about? You know, how do I make my system better? And what's worked around me? What are, I, what are my neighbors doing? 
what can I adapt to my context? It sounds like there is this learning and conversation built into the dashboard that is allowing people to accelerate change and build upon each other's innovations, really taking that food system to the next level. I'm wondering, when the food systems dashboard was being created, was there an ideal person in mind or an ideal audience that the dashboard was being built for? Yeah, thanks for that question. It's it's a good one because I think, you know, different dashboards, they, they typically do have specific audiences that they cater to. But with our work, I think we're trying to cast a really wide net here. And again, that's part of the accessibility, the inclusivity. We want to make it a resource for everyone, you know, policymakers at the country level, global decision makers, national statistical agency workers, policy analysts, you know, and geo development practitioners, professionals from the UN, civil society workers. We want it to be a resource for business. We want it to be a resource for universities, researchers, students. I The list is endless. We really want this to be, you know, something that, that everyone can use and access and cite and sort of have, have as a tool under their belt. Thank you. With so many people having access to the food systems dashboard, they will truly be able to use the evidence and data within it to help start to design policies and strategic plans to move into the future. Have you already seen policymakers and companies working towards creating a more resilient food system? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a big one too. I guess I'll try to tackle it from different angles and sort of chip away at it because again, there's a lot of great work being done, you know, on the city level, on the national level. You know, there's businesses that are engaging in the right ways. But let me just maybe give you a few examples. You see a movement in some cities towards better public procurement, you know, providing public schools and and hospitals, prisons, you know, the military, kind of reaching for that lever that simultaneously holds the power to improve dietary outcomes on a massive scale and also invest in sustainable agriculture from the other side. You know, I think public procurement is a really powerful way to kind of kill two birds with one stone, especially because it's it's government investment in a way and it's, you know, affecting at least half half the people in in your food system. I mean, I I did a bit of research on this myself in in undergrad actually and and found that you know, more than you know, more than 60% of, of people in the U.S. will eat one meal a day in, you know, a school, a hospital, a prison. And you can automatically sort of tap into that if you make those systems better. But then there's there's different things happening in cities, for example, too. There's policies that aim to increase access to healthier foods by bringing supermarkets to low-income areas. There's a bunch of exciting, yeah, sort of it kind of sees cities as laboratories for trying out solutions that can be scaled later on. You've also got companies, I guess, and engaging in some ways, sort of diving a bit deeper into regenerative agriculture, maybe deciding to, to adopt, you know, things like Nutri-Score. 
that basically slap on a, a nutritional label onto the front of their pack, which can be daunting because once they do it, they have to do it for all their products. And so inevitably it means that some products are going to be graded worse than others. And they take that risk, right? Because they also, I think, see it as a challenge to sort of improve their offering. But then you've also got governments, you know, on a federal level, really taking action, you can take the European Green Deal, maybe, you know, with its farm to fork strategy. It's basically one of the first and best examples of what that kind of leadership looks like in practice on an international scale. You've got, you know, the entire EU that's that's committed to some pretty wild targets, you know, making 25% of the EU agriculture organic by 2030, that's a quarter, that's huge. Reducing, they aim to reduce pesticides by, by 50% by 2030, again, it's big. And they aim to reduce, you know, food waste and nutrient loss by about 50%. So they're kind of, yeah, they're tackling it from all angles. And I think that's one of the biggest sort of, yeah, risky but necessary policy decisions that we've seen. I, I say risky because this isn't always, again, this, these, there's tension between doing the right thing for human health and sustainability and also maintaining your economy. But I think they're willing to make the hard decisions. So mm -hmm. there's potential. I like how you have discussed these various stakeholders that are involved within the food system. I think it takes each of these groups discussing, brainstorming all these new solutions at both a community level and a global level to create lasting changes. I believe that there are multiple paths towards a resilient future, and by empowering each of these groups and individuals to act, we really help to shape what that future is going to look like. There's so many different ways to get there, and, and again, I mean, it's it's complex, which makes it daunting. You know, all these different parts of the food system are so interconnected. And there's kind of ripple effects that cascade down the food system every time you decide to, to make something better in one part or make something, you know, maybe you decide to get lazy in another part. Um, it kind of affects the whole. But that actually, yeah, that, that kind of goes back to why we, and we, created this. I wasn't actually part of the team when it, I wasn't part of the team that, that designed and, and created it. I joined a bit later on, but I, I do think that, you know, part of their vision was really just, yeah, making this, making all these ripple effects a bit more visible, you know, again, just even being able to visualize different indicators through a map, maybe through like a bubble chart where you've got four dimensions, you know, you can sort of hit your y-axis, your x-axis, get get a bubble size to reflect a driver like population or urbanization, and then just have like a temporal dimension where you can see a time lapse of how these trends have played out over time. I think that's, yeah, yeah, the goal is to to make it a bit more, just, just less, less daunting to have all this information and it affecting everything that you just really need to make a decision. And so we wanna create that pathway for you. I really believe that this is the true beauty behind the food systems dashboard 
It is pulling all of this complex data and providing simple visualizations that can be played with and explored to find deeper insights. I'm excited to continue exploring the dashboard and cannot wait to see what's to come. I just want to finish this podcast by asking what inspired you, Christina, to explore the food system? I think it's the unique bridge between our health and and the health of the planet. It's really if you, you know, try to connect fields like, like medicine and environmental science, sometimes the only overlap is food, right? Uh, that's kind of the o- only place you can get a lot of these different parties to agree. And so it just becomes kind of this, yeah, this cross section that is just bubbling with potential. People just sort of coming together from all different fields and levels of expertise. And it's so intimate too, food. I mean, it's so visceral. We, you know, vote for the kind of system we want three times a day, whether we like it or not. And so it just affects every single one of us, wherever we are. I think that's, yeah, that kind of gives people a powerful reason to act. And I think we're seeing more and more people buy into that, you know, this sort of vote with your fork movement. And above all, I think, yeah, I think that with this work that we do, the food systems dashboard, I think it, it sort of recognizes the importance of, you know, the local, for example, you know, policymakers, whether on a local or regional or, or national level, they're the only ones that know the buttons to push, you know, so you have to kind of construct this, this story that'll really spark their interest, you have to motivate them to do something more. And it has to be driven by you, it has to be owned by you, you know, it doesn't work if someone else is telling you to do it. And you have to be able to to sort of seek out these North stars, you know, these like glaring anomalies, whether they're positive or, or negative around you. And, and you have to be able to chase them, you have to feel empowered to chase them. And so I think, yeah, just tying the data piece to that, I think, realizing how, how much potential data has to sort of set people out on that path. Wow, your passion is truly inspiring, Christina. Thank you so much for your time today and for all of the wonderful work that you've been doing within the food system. If you've enjoyed our exploration into food systems and are looking to continue diving in, you may be interested in joining Dr. Joanna Taylor, who is hosting a course on food security through the Adaptation Learning Network. Dr. Joanna Taylor is a postdoctorate researcher at UBC Okanagan, and her research lies at the crossroads of agriculture, water, and adaptation. The course will take participants through case studies and policies, all focused around adapting our food system. To find out more information or register for the course, please look for the link in the podcast description. Thanks again for listening, and have a wonderful day.